Welcome to the Forest Overstory podcast. This podcast explores forest stewardship in the Pacific Northwest, helping landowners and professionals gain new insights and information in the field of forest management. The Forest Overstory is a product of the Washington State University Extension Forestry Program and is supported by the Washington Department of Natural Resources and the Society of American Foresters. All right. Well, welcome back, Forest Overstory listeners, and happy March. We're in the final weeks of winter and the final weeks of tree planting season for those people tuning in from the uh, west side of the mountains. We have a very special episode and guest today to discuss that very topic. Uh, But before we jump in, some introductions for first-time listeners. I am Patrick Schultz with Washington State University, and I'm joined by my colleague, Kevin Zobrist. Kevin, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Patrick, and uh, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for the Forest Overstory podcast. My name is Kevin Zobrist. I'll also work with WSU Extension Forestry along with Patrick. Did you do any tree planting this year? Not yet. Not yet. There's still time. There's still time. I, I need to go and, and get a couple of things and get them in the ground. I also need to move a couple of things. <laughs> yeah, me too. I'm glad there's still time. Um Well, I think we should just jump right into our guest because we've got a lot to discuss today. Um, You may not know his name, but if you're in Washington, there's a pretty good chance you've planted his seedlings. (laughs) We have Jim Brown with the Plant Materials Center in Bow, Washington. Uh, How are you doing, Jim? I'm doing very good. Thanks, Patrick, and and nice to talk, chat with you, Kevin. Um, Yeah, thanks. I'm I'm, uh, the nursery manager or director of nursery operations for the Washington Association of the Conservation District's Plant Materials Center. And that's a mouthful. It, it is. But it's a very important organization. You guys produce a lot of seedlings. Um, I'm just kind of curious, you know, how did you end up in, in this position? What's your background? Uh, well, I've always had an interest in plants and go back to the grade school years for that. Um, but... Uh, in college, I finally picked a major, and I, I graduated with a BS in uh, botany from the University of Idaho. Um, after after college, I kind of went into the ornament, ornamental nursery field to make a living, and uh, and on about '97, uh, the job as a grower at the WACD Plant Materials Center came open, and I thought. That was a good synthesis of my botany background and my nursery production background and applied and, uh, and lo and behold, they hired me. So um, 25 years later, I'm, I'm still trying to figure it out. <laughs> so you really worked your way up. You started at the bottom and, and worked your way all the way to the top. That's really impressive. Yeah. Yeah. There's not many people out there in this field. And that's certainly a topic in itself is uh is uh, motivating and training the next generation of people to come up and do it. But, uh, but uh, you know, it's been a great, a great run, a great opportunity. We have produced a bunch of seedlings. Uh, probably this year, our production will be in the neighborhood of 2 million. So it's small compared to the big industrial forest nurseries. But uh, given the diversity we have of species that we grow and stock types, um, it keeps us busy. Yeah, and I, I think... Like earlier, a lot of people probably have planted your your seedlings in one way or another, um, but they may not have known it came from the PMC, you know. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about, um, you know, how what is the PMC affiliated with, and, and where do a lot of the seedlings end up going? Um, I know they do a lot for the conservation districts. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we're. Uh... We're kind of a function, a business function of the Washington Association of Conservation Districts. And that's a state association, a private nonprofit state association for the uh, 45 conservation districts in the state. Uh, They've been around since the 40s. Historically, they do typical association duties such as uh, communications, annual meetings, you know, some lobbying on the state level, what's happening in Olympia. And then in the early 90s, they uh, were given the opportunity to take over operations at the Plant Materials Center. At the time, it was a tree seedling nursery run by DNR. And uh, 
and they, uh, I guess, came to the decision that they could manage all their production down at the Webster Nursery in Olympia. So they vacated and the facility was offered to WACD to grow conservation seedlings, plant materials. And they took them up on it. And I think it's been about 30 years now uh, that they've been running it. Um, so we are a private nonprofit. Uh, and, uh, and we do serve the 45 conservation districts. Not all of them have plant material programs, uh, but, but a good majority do. And um, they make up a significant portion of our, of our market. Uh, but there's a lot of other players. Uh, we, our production surpasses what the conservation districts uh, need. So we're selling to uh, agencies, municipalities, tribes, planting contractors, other nurseries, private landowners, uh, uh, just a wide range of customers. Uh, as I'm sure everybody probably has heard now that uh, the demand for native plants is going up and the plant material center is well positioned to uh, to address part of that demand uh, throughout the state and throughout the region, uh, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, British Columbia, and uh, a few things go further beyond that. Jim, what are you finding are the most popular species right now as the demand for native plants increases? The forestry species, uh, Doug fir being king, uh, western red cedar, western hemlock, ponderosa pine, um, and then some of the more minor ones would be uh, Grand Fir, Sitka Spruce, uh, Western Larch. Uh, so there's a big demand for, for forestry species, both with uh, the activity in the forestry, forest industry. And then there's also uh, fire recovery. And then uh, our real bread and butter would be repairing restoration. I think that's why uh, the, the PMC came into being was to uh, the understanding that uh, many salmon runs were being listed as threatened and endangered, and they knew there was going to have to be a lot of work done on salmon spawning habitat, and that there wasn't a lot of uh, capacity for those species out there. Um, so uh, all the repairing species are, uh, are in pretty high demand, but the single most in demand would be the conifers with uh, Doug for kind of leading that pack. What's the market like for understory species, the native shrubs and stuff? Very strong. Um, the, uh, the state is really looking at up in the game, up in their game on uh, planting the uh, salmon bearing streams, uh, particularly ones that are, uh, don't have much shade in the water, they're temperature polluted. And uh, that accounts for a lot of miles of streamside that needs replanting. And so uh, the state has up their uh, amount of the budget for that kind of stuff. And the current budget that's being debated in Olympia uh, right now uh, goes much further than that. So uh, that demand is skyrocketing just as much or more so than the forestry demand, I think. Joe, I've heard you say that, you know, your job at the PMC, um, you know, your production is is largely speculative because growing seedlings is a process. And so you have to sort of try and predict how many people are going to want. Um, you know, we've seen that in in the last several years, seedling demand is, is incredibly high. But at the same time, a lot of nurseries are uh, struggling and even some are shutting down. Does that sort of speculative nature feed into that, why it's so difficult to keep these nurseries running, and, and how have you handled that? Um, for us, you know, we, we see a huge demand. We hear a lot of chatter about needing more plants, and we're, we're trying to ratchet up our production as fast as we can. Uh, there's certainly a lot of things that stand in the way of, of a major increase, so, you know, we're, we're pumping up five, 10, 15% based upon increases in efficiency. Um, but then over the years, we've heard uh, talk about a lot of programs gonna need a lot of plant materials for this purpose or that purpose. And until you start seeing firm orders, you've gotta take it with a little bit of a grain of salt because sometimes those programs uh, disappear on you in a hurry. 
Um, and being speculative, you know, we have a lot of money laying out there for plants we're gonna sell next year and the year after. And if, if the market turns around in a hurry, um, nurseries can get burned. You know, back in 2008, when we had the last recession, house building dropped, uh, forestry dropped. And I think a couple of the nurseries went out at that time. Uh, they just weren't prepared for, for that uh, sudden decrease. Um, some of the other reasons why nurseries go away is uh, the lack of qualified people to run the nursery. Mm. Uh, one of the big nurseries in Olympia in Plains, Montana, Lawyer Nursery, it's a huge barrett seedling operation, ornamental, uh, conservation. Uh, it dealt with a lot of different markets, but the owner couldn't find anybody to uh, step in and take over, uh, so they just closed. So. Again, there's a problem with uh, motivating and training the next generation to come up and, and do it. Uh, you know, the, the Oregon State Nursery, the Phipps Nursery went out of business. Um, I think it, under the uh, understanding that uh, private industry would, would fill that gap and uh, whether or not there's seller's remorse for that or not, I don't know. Uh, we certainly get inquiries from small private forest landowners in Oregon looking for stock that they can't find. Um, so yeah, the, the capacity of nursery production has gone down and, uh, there's some significant numbers of how much it's going to climb well beyond what there's current capacity for. What do you see as some possible solutions to these challenges? I, w I would think, uh, one thing that would untie our hands a little bit would be more forward contracting. Um, I feel that we've kind of hit the max on the amount that we're gonna speculate. And if somebody would come to us, well, more people, they already do to some degree, but if more people would come to us with a contract, give us time to get the seed or better yet, give us a seed and um, produce the plugs if we're doing a plug one or produce some two O's or some one ones. Um, you know, we get a lot, of, a lot of flack from conservation districts saying we don't, produce enough for them, but uh, if they have any knowledge of what they might need in the coming couple, three years, um, that would be very helpful. In some cases, we don't need a contract. We just need to have that information because um, if they don't know what they need, we certainly don't know what they need. Um, and then uh, and if you did get some security, take away some of that financial risk of producing plants then the next big hurdle would be find enough labor to, to run at a higher level. And uh, as I said earlier, you know, a lot of our increase in production is based upon increases in efficiency, trying to do more with the people we got because uh, it's not looking at the labor market we have for ag labor in the area here. It's really not too realistic to think you're going to find a significant more number of people to, uh, to do this for us. So, so that's part of it. And all the nurseries, everybody in the uh, planting world out there uh, has concerns and problems with labor. Um, but those would probably be the two most, uh, two most, two biggest concerns we have would be uh, financial risk and, and labor availability. Jim, I, I don't know how many people listening have been fortunate enough to get a, a nursery tour I've been able to see a few, and it's really cool. I've never been to the PMC, but I've been to, you know, Webster, uh, you know, the DNR nursery here in Olympia. And to see everything that goes into it is really remarkable. So I wonder if you can give us kind of a, a walk through the life of a seedling. Uh, I think we're also very interested in the seed collection part. Uh, any, yeah. any thoughts on that? Yeah, I'd be, be happy to kind of walk you guys through. Um, and it is it is quite a production. Um, as we mentioned earlier, uh, you're looking at two to three year uh, lead time to get a plants grown and, and out the door. And um, so in that two or three years planning and production cycle, um, you got two things kind of happening, happening simultaneously. You've got uh, seed acquisition, determine what you need and how to get it. Um, and we can talk about that in a minute here. 
And then there's uh, getting the ground ready. You know, you determine how much you're going to grow. So you got to start prepping ground. And that begins when we lift a crop out of the field. Um, so all of our production is outdoors. It's a Barrett nursery. We don't have any greenhouses. We don't have a can yard. We don't do anything in containers. It's all uh, planted directly in the ground. And so the soil is everything. So you have to get the ground ready once you've uh, pulled a crop out of the ground, once you've harvested. And so uh, we're in the process of our harvest right now. We're uh, pulling trees out of the ground. We're clearing fields. And by uh, middle of March, uh, that will be completed. And so we'll have uh, empty fields to get ready. And uh, the first thing we do is we put back to the soil. We put back everything we've taken out. And that starts with uh, liberal applications of chicken manure to the soil. We bring in like a mountain of chicken manure and spread it with a manure spreader and work it in. And then we plant a barley cover crop to, uh, to hmm. tie up those plant available nutrients and uh, produce some organic matter, which is all tilled in. We don't cut it for hay or anything. Everything's tilled in. We don't let it go to seed. We mow it before it goes to seed. And, um, and as you get towards late summer, um, a lot of the deciduous hardwood uh, native shrubs, like uh, the native roses or choke cherry or whatever, a lot of those are fall sown. So we really can't use that ground for anything else during the summertime, so we put back into it. And then late summer, we till that into the ground and uh, get it ready for fall sowing, which is a good part of our production. And uh, so we bring in the seed and uh, we have commercial collectors that collect most of our seed. Uh, the uh, non-conifers, the angiosperms, um, they're done by one set of collectors that focus on that kind of stuff. And again, that would be the, the alders and birches and big leaf maples and vine maples and uh, a whole wide, wide range of things. And they go out every year and get seed. And, uh, and we use wild collections and we use source identified seed and we, we track the provenance of that seed. Um, and every year you have uh, regional failures of, um, of uh, seed production. Last year, the Gary Oak didn't produce many acorns. So, um, so in another couple of years when that crop comes due, that's gonna be short. Same with uh, low Oregon grape, not much seed production. Um, so getting seed is, is not easy and it almost seems like there might be a connection between climate change and frequency of, of poor seed years. The uh, conifers, uh, they, that's kind of a, a little more of a production and it takes a specialized seed collector and processor to do those and to know what they're doing because a lot of uh, conifers don't produce good cone crops every year for a variety of reasons. And uh, some, some species, they can average uh, several years between good cone crops. So the cone collectors will go out there uh, on about August or sometime and start looking at uh, the cones to see if uh, they're forming, if they're filled with seeds, if they're buggy. And if you have a good cone crop, if everything looks good, they will go out there and collect cones. You've got to get up to the tree to get the cones. You don't wait for the cones to fall because by then they've already discharge your seeds and they're worthless. So you gotta find a way to get those cones at the right time when the scales are starting to separate on the cone uh, before they release their seed and get those collected. And then those have to go to a professional uh, processing facility to dry them and get the seeds out and de-wing them and test them and store them. Um, so just seed acquisition is kind of an industry in itself and uh, a vital one and we could go into provenance too here in a minute too because that is so so critical not only do you have to get the seed you got to get the right seed yeah um, jim um if i could stop you you know where are they collecting this seed is it is it public land or are they like do they have contracts with is it small forest owners or i'm, I'm just kind of curious is it different every year yeah it's a wide range um with the forestry with the conifer side of things um a lot of it's coming from uh, private forests. Um, I suspect there's definitely some on public lands too, um, but, but most of the collections I'm aware of are coming off of private forest lands. And, and with that, you know, you want to get uh, older trees that probably haven't been replanted with seedlings of questionable 
provenance. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, and then with the, uh, with the hardwood deciduous species, um, you know, a lot of those are just, uh, easy to collect, you know, don't have to climb up in a tree or anything. You can get them from the ground. And so a lot of people are, uh, using, um, uh, just long road right of ways or, um, private lands. Um, you can get some of that stuff, you know, hips and berries and whatnot off public lands with the proper, uh, permissions. Uh, and so we, with, with the hardwood deciduous, you know, we kind of know our market and, and those also have larger seed transfer zones too. So you can be a little looser in your provenance. So we can say we want a bunch of stuff from North Puget Sound, lower elevation, South Puget Sound, North Ele- lower elevation, Southwest Washington, um, far east side of uh, Washington up in the Okanagan. And so our collectors will try their best to, to fulfill those requests in, in the quantities that we want. Um, and with the uh, deciduous uh, hardwood species uh, that have their seeds inside of berries or hips um, or capsules, uh, those are a little bit easier to process too. So most of the con- contract collectors will will process their own seeds. They'll have some, uh, some machines to macerate the berries and get the seeds out and separate them from the pulp. Um, the main thing is just uh, hoping you have a good seed year, year in and year out, and uh, and that's just yeah. a variable you have to face every year. I I just have to imagine I I own obviously I only do this at my own little hobby scale, but I like to collect seed and start start my own seedlings. And just thinking about doing it at the scale that you're talking about, you know, putting out two million trees and shrubs every year. Um, I just imagine that seed collection is, is a tremendous amount of work. It is. It takes a real, a real dedicated uh, collector to uh, go out there, and you've got to drive the roads endlessly, find those ideal patches that you dream about, and put in the hours of, uh, of collecting berries. Uh, sometimes you're on the road for a few days at a time. Um, so it takes a real in- dedicated individual and you certainly live in fear of losing those sources, and um, you know some of those collectors are are getting older. We do see some young people getting into it, um, so hopefully we can uh, keep that going. Uh, you know, worst case scenario, if, if we lost some more collectors, we'd probably increase staffing and go out and do it ourselves. Although we don't have a lot of knowledge of where the great collection sites are because. Uh, the time involved in collecting off of a poor site is a lot more than the time involved in collecting off of a, a rich site. Um, you know, in terms of uh, the provenance, that's uh, uh, basically we track the provenance of the seed uh, through a set of maps called tree seed uh, transfer zones. And uh, those delineate uh, contiguous geographic areas that are have a similar climate. Um, and those tree seed transfer zones differ by species as well, with Doug Fur uh, showing probably, I guess, relatively small amount of genetic, uh, quite a bit of genetic variation. So, uh, so those tree seed transfer zones are, are fairly small, fairly specific. And then you get into um, some other conifers that are more genetically plastic that can be moved around more like Western Hemlock and uh, Western White Pine. They have quite large uh, transfer zones. So not only do you need to find the seed, you need to find multiple sources of it from the right locations. And, uh, and again, when you're producing speculatively, you don't know where the market's gonna be two years from now um and getting your collectors to collect it you may not have much choice in the matter anyway when you get into uh the deciduous hardwood trees and shrubs uh they're relatively genetically plastic compared to conifers uh so the uh the transfer zones we go with there is basically a map called ecoregions and that's probably more broadly similar climatic 
areas. And, uh, and there's different levels of, of, uh, of these uh, ecoregions, but the most basic, uh, the whole Puget Sound would be one ecoregion. So that's kind of what we go with on, on those. Um, but uh, yeah, once we have this, the seed in, then, then we're ready to grow some plants. Jim, I have a quick question for you. You mentioned Western white pine. Mm -hmm. What's the status of blister rust resistant stock? Is that something the PMC sells? Uh, how effective is the blister re rust resistant stock these days? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so back about 100 years ago or more, 150 years ago, uh, the Western white pine, a five needle pine, uh, was having a, a problem with mortality due to uh, a disease called white pine blister rust. And, uh, and uh, the Western white pine was being decimated by it. And uh, the way they determined how to be able to continue to have that in the region was to breed trees, Western white pine trees that show resistance to that disease. So over the years they developed uh, tree seed orchards that have parent trees that show high resistance to white pine blister rust. And so anybody growing white, Western white pine in the region is probably getting their seed from a tree seed orchard that, uh, that produces seed with blister rust resistance. And the word resistance is key because yeah, some of those trees will still get white pine blister rust in spite of it. Um, I'm not the person to ask what the percentages ratios are of trees that make it and trees that succumb to that disease, uh, but it's not a surefire thing. Um, but you certainly have to have it if you're going to try it all. Uh, but there are, you know, second generation orchards that have uh, better protection than, uh, than some of the first generation orchards. And, uh, you know, it's uh, a <clears throat> the this the species itself, the western white pine, does show uh, a great deal of genetic plasticity, and can, and those tree seed transfer zones are quite large. So, um, you know, we can use uh, seed from a um, orchard in Cortelaner, Moscow, just as well as we can use seed from an orchard on Whidbey Island, and. Uh, and when it comes down to it, we'll take any seed we can find out there that uh, has uh, pronounced uh, resistance to white pine blister rust. But once you've got all your seeds collected, uh, can you walk us through what the next step of the process is for generating seedlings? Yeah, so uh, from seed production, uh, we break it down to I guess three different categories, uh, as I've alluded to earlier, the first category is seeds that are planted in the fall. And so, uh, so that group is all hardwood deciduous native trees and shrubs. Uh, so those seeds will be coming in through the latter part of summer and into the fall as they're collected and processed and made available. Um, and then we'll go out there and plant them in the fall excuse me, most of the um, species that we grow, almost all the species we grow, their seeds are dormant. Um, so unlike a bean seed, we can't just put it in a cup of moist soil and expect it to germinate. It's got to go through a, a cold, wet winter period um, to break that seed dormancy. And so when we fall sow, uh, the seed dormancy is broken by just being out in the seed bed all winter. Uh, it's worked for Mother Nature pretty well for a long time, so we, we take the lead on that. And then the other category of seed would be spring sown, and that would include uh, all conifers for us and, uh, and a select group of hardwood deciduous shrubs. And so, uh, so for those, uh, they still need that cold, wet winter period. Uh, but we can't give it to them naturally out in the field for fear of losing the seed, either through predation, uh, mice and voles eating the seed, or uh, or from being blown away by the wind. Some of the uh, hardwood deciduous seeds 
need light for germination, so you got to put them on top of the ground and not cover them. So with those types of seeds, uh, we break that seed dormancy through an artificial process we call stratification. And that entails uh, putting the seed in a bag of moist perlite as a medium to hold the moisture and putting them in a refrigerator about 36 degrees uh, for uh, 30, 60, or 90 days. And so the timing that those seeds go into stratification are based upon when we want to have them ready to plant. And so our planting uh, criteria for spring planting would be soil temps above 50, so we can get adequately rapid germination, relatively speaking, uh, which is about the middle of May. Uh, we can pretty well rely that our soils will be over 50 degrees. So you know, you're going to plant them in mid-May, so the so the species that need 30 days cold moist stratification go in mid-April, and 60 days they go in mid-March, and 90 days they go in um, um, mid-February. So we put it, those seeds all in the stratification. They come out in mid-May. Um, mid we dry them down so they can go through our seed drill, and then they get planted out. And uh, mentioning the seed drill, so we do have a, a couple different seed drills or an implement that you put on the back of a tractor. You know, you go, go and prep your ground, get it nice and fluffy and, and ready to, uh, to be planted. Uh, you put the seed in the seed drill and uh, set it on the right setting so it drops the seed uh, at the correct bed density and at the correct depth and then cover it with the correct amount of soil. And you go out there and plant seed, and you can put a lot of seed in in the ground in a day. Um, our uh, our seed drill uh, plants a bed that's about 42 inches wide, with eight rows that are equidistant across that 42 inches. And uh, again, our bread and butter would be the repairing species, which would be largely uh, fall sown hardwood deciduous trees and shrubs. And on a good day. And we have a lot of seed to plant, if we're lucky, we can do like 10 miles of bed. You know, it's going back and forth, back and forth across the fields. Uh, so we're planting a, a lot of ground. Um, then again, with the uh, spring sow stuff, the conifers, we dry them down, uh, go out there and plant them together. Um, the deciduous uh, hardwood stuff that needs light, we have a different seed drill that doesn't cover them. And we go out and plant those. And then those you have to keep moist until they germinate because otherwise they'd blow away. Um, and then you sit and wait. Um, with the fall sow uh, seed planted species, you wait until April. You know, you, you roll the dice and you sit there and wait and you see how you've done. Uh, with the spring sow stuff, if you got your stratification periods just right, uh, you can start seeing. Uh, ponderosa pine will germinate in seven to ten days. Uh, uh, Doug fir uh, might take a month to get the majority of the bed germinated. Uh, so you sit and wait for them to come up and, and see what you got. And if you've got a good a good germination rate, uh, then the game's afoot. You're ready to go out and start growing some plants. And so then those trees that you're or shrubs. Um that you're eventually selling, those have been in the ground typically for one year or two years? Uh, for all the conifers, it's a two-year crop, um, okay. either from seed. And we also do a lot of transplants. We actually contract with a grower to grow us small plug conifers that we transplant out. And those have a year under their belt when they get to us. And then we plant them out with our mechanical transplanter in the field and grow them out for one one summer, one growing season. Um, so those are all two-year crops. Uh, with the plugs, we have to contract in advance, uh, get the seed to the greenhouse in advance. So we're planning two years out on all that kind of stuff. For uh, a lot of the deciduous trees and shrubs, uh, we can grow them in one year. We can get uh, a lot of stuff like red osier dogwood and nutka rose and Pacific nine bark. A lot of stuff we can get two to three feet tall in one growing season. Um, some of them are phenomenal. Uh, big leaf maple, our challenge there is to keep it from getting too big. We can, <laughs> in our 
juiced up soils, we can have a seed that germinates in April. And if we did nothing to slow it down, we could have a six to eight foot seedling by September. Uh, so that's actually a problem child trying to keep that, that guy down. We, we drought stress and we undercut the roots and uh, do everything we can to keep them from getting too big. But uh, a lot of stock is just a one year crop and uh, you have nice, you can get a nice size. Some of it's slower growing like uh, some of the other, other alder species like uh, white alder, mountain alder, sitka alder, uh, they have a very slow first year out. And so those require two years to get up to a marketable size. Um, so you definitely, you're planning ahead and you're planning on different levels. You know, I've got these different one year, two year crops. Um, so it's, it's a lot to keep your eye on, a lot of planning. What happens when it's time to harvest the seedling? So yeah, so since they're bare root seedlings, and this is, you could call it a limitation of bare root, is they can only be harvested when the plant's dormant because to harvest them when they're actively growing would be too stressful and you'd lose them. So as a result, they're only available in the dormant season in the winter time. Um, and as you get in towards winter, you start gearing up for your harvest. And, uh, and uh, part of that is determining if they're dormant or not, if you can start lifting uh -oh. them or not. Now with the deciduous things, uh, they lose their leaves. It's pretty obvious when they're dormant. With the evergreens, it's not so obvious. So in order to determine um, if they're ready, you follow, you track a chill requirement. And what we use, the model we use is uh, accumulating um, 300 hours in the fall below 40 degrees. And, uh, and you know, some winters, some falls, you get your cold requirement early. Uh, some falls are very mild and uh, you can get in November without any hours below 40. Um, so once you have your, once you're dormant, then it's a matter of bringing in a harvest crew. And uh, uh, we bring in a harvest crew about 20 seasonal uh, ag workers. And we're kind of lucky in one regard is uh, during the wintertime, a lot of the crop farmers aren't employing ag workers here. So for most of the harvest, we've been able to find enough people. This year, when we started to harvest, again, we, we were looking for 20 people and 18 of them had at least one year's experience with us already. So that is just so nice to have them come back year after year. You're, first day of the season is a continuation of the last day of the previous season. They're just rocking and rolling from the start. Uh, but you get, get your crew together and you got to get your equipment ready. You've got to put the lifter on the tractor. Uh, we lift the plants. The lifter will uh, basically dig the plants, vibrate the plants up out of the ground onto the top of the ground. So you just have uh, uh, bare root seedlings laying on top of the ground. And then you have a crew that goes through and puts them into field totes that are uh, being pulled on a field trailer by another tractor. And then those totes full of bare root seedlings go into the packing shed. And there we have uh, uh, about 14 people that uh, sort and grade and package them and, and put them away in the cooler for cold storage. Um, and that's a, that's a pretty busy time. It's definitely our busiest time of, of the year. And that starts about the 1st of December and goes until about early mid-March. Uh, last year, we, we lost three weeks of harvest time due to frozen ground. When the ground freezes solid like a rock, no, we can't lift out of it. This year has been okay, but last year we lost three weeks. And uh, that pushed our harvest out until uh, mid-March, which is getting to the time where they start breaking dormancy. So you get a little bit nervous there. Again, this year has been pretty good. So we're pretty much on schedule. We've, uh, we've lifted uh, over a million plants this season so far and shipped about a half million thus far. Uh, so, so far, so good. And uh, if all goes well, we'll be done before too late in March. And, uh, and then the whole cycle starts over again. You get the plants pulled out of the ground. They expect us to put plants back in and grow some more. Right. Well, so for those uh, people on the receiving end of these seedlings, they're going to be putting them in the ground. Uh, you know, what are your your top tips for seedling care and ensuring that they're uh, 
going to survive into into being put into the ground. That is that is so critical. Um, so again, these are bare root, and so uh, they don't like drying out. Uh, the containerized stock types, you know, they have the the soil in the pot or the soil in the plug. Uh, so drying out doesn't happen quite so rapidly. All it does happen as well there. But just keep them from drying out. Uh, keep them from being exposed to excessive heat. Even though these, these things are dormant and maybe in cold storage, they still respire. And you got a whole bag full of respiring seedlings. They will generate their own heat in the bag without uh, proper cold storage. And if you put them out in the sun for a few days while you, while you plant the site, uh, it can get quite warm in those bags and they can dry out. Uh, so try to keep everything in cold storage. Take out just enough to what you can do, use that day. Only take out if enough we can plant within a short period of time to keep from drying out. Um, and try to get them done before too late in the spring. Um, if you stretch your planting out into May, uh, you can get them planted and then go right into a, a dry period, particularly on the east side of the state. Uh, so probably try to get them planted sooner than later, although there's also too soon. Um, up in Whatcom County here, they are can get a cold northeast wind in the wintertime. And I've seen some plantings of western red cedar in particular uh, done in like December, January. And then you get that northeaster that blows through and just desiccates and freezes them and kills them. So you got to be familiar with, with what your climate is, with what your weather is, as to when you should start planting. Uh, and then layer on another problem for the people trying to plant trees would be finding uh, planting contractors if it's a large project. Uh, you've got to work them into your schedule too and that can be the most challenging of all. Um, so it's it's a challenge to, to get those and get them in the ground but uh, to keep them cold and keep them from drying out is, is the best advice. Uh, Jim, what if a, a landowner is not able uh, to use all the seedlings in the year that they get them? Do you have any tips for what to do in that situation? Yeah, yeah, there's a few options. Uh, probably the most common option is just to uh, uh, dig some trenches or get some dirt and heal them in. Uh, you can also heal them in uh, uh, something non-mineral like bark mulch. Uh, with that, uh, the lighter the media you use to heal them in, uh, the quicker they're going to dry out. So when you do heal them in, you got to take care of them and you got to keep them moist. Um, we've been working on another uh, method uh, that's starting to go operational, and that's a process called Missouri gravel beds. And that was something developed in Missouri for ornamental bare root nursery stock, where you heal them in pea gravel. And uh, we've we've done that. We've created some beds with pea gravel with soaker hose running through it. And it develops a really nice fibrous root system. Every time the root hits that air gap between the pea gravel, it off the branches creating a more fibrous root system that's uh, better capable of taking up moisture. Um, again, we put the uh, soaker hose on timer, so it's pretty hands-off for us. And with that more fibrous roots, they can actually handle being pulled out uh, earlier in the fall before they're dormant and being planted. Uh, so you might see some of that on our availability. We had a little bit this year of, uh, of for early fall planting of uh, some gravel bed stock. So that definitely works. A lot of uh, the nonprofits that we're working with, nonprofit fish enhancement groups that are planting a lot of these uh, riparian lowland floodplain stream sides, uh, they, they feel they need bigger stock than what we can supply, so they pot them up. They pot them up in one gallon, two gallon size pots, whatever, and grow them on. And, uh, and that carries them over for a year quite well, as long as you water them and take care of them. And, uh, and uh, you can have, have stock you can plant in the fall before they go dormant because you can plant containerized stocks that's, uh, that's still leafed out. Um, so those are kind of your options. You really can't store them in the cooler for that long because they wouldn't uh, make it through the whole summer. Right. Yeah. Well, I appreciate those tips. I mean, I, I know 
for myself, I've been on a couple pretty tragic site visits to landowners that just planted a, you know, a few acres, but weren't aware of the, the seedling care that you mentioned. And they called me because they're dying. And really you find out that they were dead when they were in the ground and they're just kind of showing it now. And that can obviously be a huge financial burden to, to rectify that. Um, so, but before we close out, because uh, we are kind of running out of time, I did want to touch on on one more topic that's really important uh, when it comes to tree planting, which is climate change. Um, really, tree planting is is uh, a really important tool when it comes to building climate resilience. It's an opportunity to select um, species that are resilient, and as you mentioned, uh, selecting seed zones. And, and one of the things we talk about with climate change adaptation is the possibility of transferring seed zones. And I wonder if you can just touch on uh, briefly what that means to transfer a seed zone. We talked about it a little bit and, you know, are you seeing any demand for that currently? Yeah. Yeah. I think one catch term for that nowadays is uh, assisted migration. And that's kind of the study of uh, predicting what, the future climate's going to be like because a lot of these plants are going to be in the ground for for decades if not longer and you want them to be uh suitable for whatever climate happens to be there in the future and that's that's uh you know there's there's a lot of generalities of you know we're gonna get hotter and drier um so we should select for more drought tolerance and one way to address that would be uh take trees or their seeds anyway from further south, like uh, Southeast Washington or Willamette Valley, Oregon, and, uh, and grow them for seedlings to be planted further north, um, like up towards King, Skagit County. Um, so that's kind of a broad uh, thumbnail description of, of that. Um, but that research while it's being pursued actively uh, still isn't uh, developed enough to provide any definite ideas of what that should look like in terms of a tree seed transfer zone map. Um, my concern as a, as a bare root seedling grower is, uh, you know, we, we get, we have a market down in Oregon for a lot of stuff. So we actually get seeds collected from Oregon and we grow them out up here in Skagit County. Uh, to send back down to Oregon for planting projects. Um, but what we see in some cases with that is they're slower to go dormant in the fall. And up here in Northwest Washington, um, we occasionally get uh, these Arctic air fronts that come down and bring sudden cold temperatures often before, the, occasionally before they go dormant and that can kill plants real quickly. Um, so we do need to address uh, potential increases in drought and heat, but we need to make sure these plants are getting uh, dormant and uh, surviving our cold snaps because we still have cold snaps. Um, so there's, there's still a lot of work to be done on that. Uh, we do have customers from Pierce King County, wherever, that specifically requests some of our Oregon stock uh, to try up here and see how it does. And, uh, and the jury's still out on that and probably will be for a long, long time. Uh, but that work's being done and needs to be done. Um, we talked about just a minute ago about some uh, planting failures. And uh, summer before last during the heat dome, we had a customer who's a Christmas tree grower and he had just planted out 10,000 noble fir uh, right before the heat dome hit, I guess that spring, and uh, and he lost all 10,000 of them. So oh, wow. uh, in order to, uh, to keep that from happening, we need to figure out how to adapt to that because that heat dome was just a, a very uh, unusual event. Um, you know, some other popular news I've caught lately would be uh, well, an article about uh, a major loss of true furs in Oregon. I think they've nicknamed it Firmageddon. And that's pretty concerning. Millions of trees dead uh, that they weren't aware of. Um, so uh, so it's pretty 
pretty frightening times ahead and hopefully uh, we can steer a path that's going to provide us with uh, the trees and the fuel and the fiber and everything else, the wildlife habitat that we need. And, uh, and uh, it's time will tell, I guess. Yeah, and I, there's just no doubt that as it plays out, uh, nurseries like the PMC are going to play such a, a critical role. You know, obviously, as you said, tree planting is just going to be so important. Um, so I really appreciate your comments of kind of really depending on the research and, and, and waiting for that to, to give us the good guidance um, going forward. But we have had a, a really great conversation. I really appreciate you joining us, Jim. Um, I've learned a lot about nursery production uh, just in the 50 minutes we've been talking. So I, I really appreciate it. Do you have anything else you want to wrap up with? No, I just want to thank thank you and uh, and Kevin for for all you're doing to help people out there. Uh, as you mentioned, when you walk that one side of people that lost some trees they'd planted, uh, there's a need for education and information out there, and the nurseries can handle what they can. But as more people become actively involved in tree planting, uh, there's going to be more need for education and information. So thanks, what you guys are doing. I want to give a great shout out for our staff at the PMC. There's five full-time people that, uh, that work their tails off. And uh, as a result, the PMC is uh, greater than the sum of its parts. Uh, and uh, it just pleases me to see uh, tree planting taking such a, such a uh, visible role out there. Everybody wants trees, everybody likes trees. Uh, you know, they are the basis of life on Earth, so so it's about time people caught up with that, and uh, and uh, you know hopefully we can all work together and get the kind of stock you need. I think uh, in the end, getting the stock you need for your planting projects involves communicating with the nursery and developing a relationship with that nursery, so you know what they can provide, and they know what you need, and hopefully you can come with uh, an agreeable uh, middle ground where. Uh, nurseries are producing uh, relatively efficiently and uh, the customers are getting the stock they need in the manner that they need it. Well, thank you, Jim. We appreciate your spending this time with us. We really enjoyed talking with you. And to all our listeners out there, thank you for joining us. You are listening to the Forest Overstory podcast. Don't forget, you can find on the WSU Extension Forestry YouTube channel all of our past episodes, and we hope you'll join us next time.